Good morning. This is the time we'll be reading from God's Word in preparation for the sermon by Jim. If you would, please stand, as is our custom here. We will be reading from Philippians chapter 4, verses 10 to 23, as you turn in your Bible. If you do not have a Bible with you, the scriptures will be on the screens behind me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, now that at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent, help, sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I receive full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to, the, to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. This is the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Well, hello again. This is, uh, as you, if you've been with us, you know we are coming to the end of our series in Philippians. This is the last sermon in the series. So for me, it feels like somewhat of a milestone, first sermon series down. And Paul, at the end of Philippians, is basically going back to where he was in the beginning. He's thanking the Philippians for the financial gifts that they've sent him. And I don't know, if you've ever been, if you've ever received money for missions, if you've ever given money for missions, uh, I've been on both the giving and the receiving end, and I can tell you, it can be an awkward process. <laughs> there are awkward pieces to it. And, you know, when you're on the receiving end on, one end, on one hand, you want people to know that you're thankful for what they're doing. You want them to know that you're not in it for the money, that you're going to use the money responsibly. Um, and, you know, on the other hand, you want to make sure that, that if you hold some sort of authoritative leverage over them or spiritual authority, that you're in no way abusing that authority. So there's just a lot that goes in in receiving money, and you want to make sure you're communicating a lot of different things. And in the beginning of our passage, you see Paul kind of navigating this same tension. So in verse 10, you see that he's really thankful. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And when, I will have to say, when you read this in English, especially the NIV, it says, at last you have renewed your concern for me, which doesn't sound really thankful in, in English. But what Paul's really saying, he said, I understand you don't know what's going on with me most of the time. You know, there was no internet, there was no fine friends, there, there wasn't even a postage system back then, so Paul could be gone for years at a time, and you had no idea where he was, and then all of a sudden the Philippians hear, oh, he's in Rome. 
he's in Rome and he's in prison, so we need to go ahead and send him some gifts. So that's why he says, now at length, you've revived your concern for me, and I know that you didn't have an opportunity before that. So that's Paul's grateful side, but he also knows that they're, they're giving sacrificially. They're giving money they don't necessarily have. And, and that's why he says in, uh, well, in a few verses, he doesn't want them to feel this pressure to continue to give to Paul. And he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, not that I seek the gift. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied. So you see this tension, you know, Paul doesn't want to be this evangelist asking people to give seed money out of their retirement so that he can go fly on jets somewhere or be on fancy carriages, I guess, in his context. So he's telling them, yes, I'm in great need. And yes, I'm fine at the same time. I don't need anything. So this is, this is a weird tension to try to hold in balance. I have needs, they're great, yet I'm totally fine. <laughs> and so how, how do you merge those two things? And that's exactly what Paul is doing in this passage. He's teaching a Christian view of contentment. I have great needs, but I'm fine. That's what Paul wants us to see. And we live in a culture today who spends billions of dollars every year on trying to find contentment. And every study that that is done on contentment shows that the more affluent our society becomes, the less content we become. And we now statistically live, statistically proven, live in the least content society in the history of the world. <laughs> my, uh, my youngest son, James, just turned four last Sunday, and we had a big birthday party for him. He had a blow up in the yard. We invited family over. He had a dinosaur cake, and he was having a blast. He, he felt like the whole day. It was all about him, and then we brought the pinata out, and they all got in line, and they were hitting the pinata. And then this one boy, who we all knew he was going to be the one who breaks the pinata, he took one whack and just destroyed that thing. And all the kids went for the candy. And James, my four-year-old, whose the day has been all about him, he realizes that other kids got more candy than he did. And you know what he said to me in that moment? This is the worst day ever. <laughs> Even though the day was great, he was able to see someone else had something that he didn't have and that bred discontent in his soul. And I really wish that that kind of discontentment was isolated to (laughs) four-year-olds, but I see it in my own heart all the time. Every time I get on a plane, I know how discontent I can be because years ago, I was flying back from Europe and, uh, and because I bought the really cheap flight, I spent the night on the floor of a German airport and I went to the lady at the front desk and I looked at her and I said, listen, I just slept on the floor. I'm exhausted. Can I just have a seat where I can sleep well? That's all I want. She said, sure. She handed me a ticket and I walked on the plane looking for seat 2A. And I could tell some of you fly. And you know, when you get on a transatlantic flight and you get to seat 2A, my jaw dropped. I'm looking at a first class seat, not, not a business class but a true transatlantic business class seat. So I had this massive leather chair. Uh, I was eating a filet mignon. I had more buttons to push than I could possibly do halfway over across the ocean. And so it was a great experience. But now, now I know what's going on in the front of the plane. (laughs) And so I can never be content in the economy section again. I just, I didn't even want to look at the people in first class. There's just a bunch of jerks. Because I know what they have, I can't be content anymore. And I think that's what we see playing out over and over again in our culture. And it's why Paul's saying in verse 11, I have learned 
in whatever situation I am to be content. So I want to look at this passage and I want to answer three simple questions. I want to answer why it is that we need contentment. What is the secret to contentment? And what does that contentment do to us? That's what we're going to look at from this passage. So why do we need it? In short, we need contentment because we are fallen. All right, I'm going to come back to that, but that's where we're going. We need contentment because we're fallen. We are looking, at some, looking for something that we lack, and we tend to find it in all the wrong areas. But C.S. Lewis, now famously, he wrote, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire. Well, there's such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. We long for something that we can't explain what it is. You know, I, probably you know what it feels like to, to be anxious about something. Something happens and you're anxious, but then you forget about what that thing was exactly that made you anxious. So you have this continuing anxiety, even though you can't remember what was it that, that made me anxious in the first place. And this is really similar to what's going on in our souls. We are discontent. We don't always know why we're discontent, but we're discontent. So we look to find contentment in all these places. But if we don't know what it is we're truly longing for, we're never going to be satisfied. And in the words of the Apostle John, he says the place that we go to find the contentment that we lack is the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. So what is it that we lack and why don't we have it? We lack a thriving relationship with the God who made us and we lack it because of our pursuit of the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. And this is gonna make a lot more sense when we go back and connect it to Genesis three because in Genesis three, you have Adam and Eve who are enjoying a thriving relationship with the God who created them and then in a moment, they chose instead to go the way God wanted them to go to go the way they wanted to go, pursuing the desires of the flesh, the desire of the eyes, and the pride of life. And we see that in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, desire of the flesh, good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, desire of the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. What is that? Pride of life. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So Tim Keller defines true contentment as soul satisfaction. Our soul longs to be satisfied. But that moment when Adam and Eve ate the fruit, all satisfaction, all contentment, contentment was ripped from their souls as they began a pattern that today we not only experience, but we perpetuate in our own discontentment. And so in our search for the contentment that was taken from us in the fall, we're gonna look to all kinds of things to be satisfied, but they're never gonna satisfy us. We're gonna look to money and relationships and jobs to find the contentment that we inherently lack, not knowing where we can really find it. And it's easy, you know, to look at this passage and to think that that 
Christian contentment is this really lofty ideal. You know, yet maybe the Apostle Paul learned the secret to contentment. Maybe a few, a few other people who are spiritual giants, but probably I'm never going to really experience Christian contentment the way that he's talking about. Well, it's not a lofty goal. It's the 10th commandment. The 10th commandment says, you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything else that's your neighbor's. So we're commanded not to covet, which is another way of saying, be content. So now that you know that you're commanded to be content, is problem solved? No. Just knowing that we're commanded to do something doesn't always fix the problem. And actually, the point of the 10th commandment, it wasn't to solve our problem of discontent or coveting, It was to show us the problem. And apparently this was a big part of Paul's journey to Christ because he writes to the Roman church in chapter seven, yet if if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin for I would have not known what it is to covet or to be content. (laughs) If the law had not said you shall not covet, but sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness or discontent. All right, so what we've heard so far is that we're commanded to be content and that it's a secret. <laughs> so is God commanding us to do something that he's and withholding the resource to be able to carry out that command? And the answer is obviously no. And the confusion comes from this word secret because in English, we read secret and we hear something that is intentionally hidden. But in Greek, the word secret, it has a, like, a subtle but important nuance. It doesn't mean something that is intentionally hidden. It means something that's hard to find. So the secret to contentment, it's hard to find, but it's available to everyone if we have eyes to see it. So that's why we have this longing to be content now. What is the secret? What is the secret to contentment? I think the secret to contentment is twofold. First, you need to realize that you need it. We need to realize that nothing in this world is really going to satisfy us. No amount of money or power or status is ever going to truly satisfy us. And only when we can do that are we able to embark on the path of true contentment. And very few people can honestly say no to that. No, I don't desire. No, I don't pursue those things for my contentment. I know that my contentment is somewhere else. And the reason that few Americans nowadays can say that is because most of us have not experienced the height of plenty and the low of want. We haven't experienced the the plateau and the valley the way that Paul has. And so we can't say from experience, we know those things aren't going to satisfy us. But Paul does. And we can see this in verses 11 and 12. Paul says, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret to facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. So Paul has experienced plenty. He knows what it's like to be on top. He knows what it's like to have the status and the power. And because of that, he knows that it will not give him what he longs for the most. Uh, So there was a study done recently on how much money will make an American happy. And so I want everybody to think, how much more money would it take for you to be truly happy? I want you to have a number in your mind. And the study showed that a majority of Americans said $20,000 more 
is the number. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if 20,000 was your number. But the interesting, go ahead and raise your hands. (laughs) Uh, Interestingly enough, when I read the study, that was my number. But what's interesting about the study is that someone who made $60,000 said 20. Somebody who made $80,000 said 20. Somebody who made $100,000 said 20. Somebody who made $150,000 said 20. So what we really learned in the study is that it doesn't matter if you have your 20 more, you're always going to want 20 more. Because we know that somebody else has more. We know that there's something else that we can have with 20,000 more dollars. And in this study, we see that $20,000 more is not going to give us the contentment that we think it should have. And just to go to an extreme, let's go all the way to the top. There's a reason that superstars who seem to have everything are still dealing with their discontent through abusing drugs and alcohol. There's a reason that we see people who seem to have everything in life killing themselves in their, in their misery. There's a reason that the lottery, more often than not, ruins lives. It doesn't make them better. It's because when we get to the top, we're able to see that this isn't satisfying my soul the way that I thought it would. And I have to imagine, in a room this size, there's somebody here thinking, well, Jim... I'm not sure I believe you (laughs) because I'm making enough money to pay the bills and then some. My family's doing well. I don't feel this discontent that you're talking about. I actually feel like I'm pretty content right now. And if that is you and that is the way that you're thinking, I want to first say, praise God, things are going well in your life right now. I'm really glad that they are. But the contentment that you're sitting on is a fragile one. Because you and I and all the rest of us are just one phone call away from that kind of contentment being jerked out from under our, under our feet. You just haven't lived long enough to know that yet. The contentment that Paul's talking about goes much deeper. It doesn't depend on things going well. And it doesn't just support him in times of plenty. It supports him in times of want. That was the other part of the, the verse. Paul knows what it looks like to be brought low. And I'm not talking about like, I don't like my car low. I don't like my job low. I'm talking about, I'm about to lose everything low. I'm about to lose my family. I'm about to lose my house. I'm about to lose my very life. I'm in prison, that kind of low. Paul's been in that kind of low and he has been sustained by the kind of contentment that he's exhorting to the Philippians and to us. And if we doubt that for one minute, we have only to read what Paul said to the Corinthians in chapter 11, describing his ministry and his life. He says, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was at drift at sea. You see, it's only in those seasons of want, like really deep want, that certain things begin to come into perspective, that we begin to really see what it is that's most important in life. One pastor that I read called, called it a season of being able to distinguish between the icing on the cake and everything else. Because when we're a season of deep want, we're able to see that all those things that we thought were so important at one time, all they are, are icing on the cake. They're good. We like icing. I like icing. But icing is not going to sustain us. And neither are any of the other things that we're running to for the contentment that we long for. And so Paul has been in these seasons. He's been able to attest to the futility of all the things and times of, of plenty and to the 
refocusing of being in real times of want. But as I was thinking about this, the reality is that most people in this room, most of us have not experienced the, the true low or the true high. So I was trying to think, how, how can we be convinced that we need contentment? And I can, I can give you a test that I fail often. Uh, you know, so I'm new back to Orlando and my whole life w- was really in South Orlando when I was growing up. North Orlando is like a new city to me. But when you drive around, let's say Park Avenue, Interlochen, uh, Palmer, you see a whole nother world of wealth. You see these incredible houses on these massive lots. Um, you see the, the, all these amazing lakes and these oak hammocks. And my question is, when we drive through these kinds of neighborhoods or Windermere, wherever, do we look at these homes and on one hand think, if I had that, all my problems would be solved. If I had that, my life would really be easier. Because if that's our response, then we have a contentment problem. Or do we drive through these parts of town and think, at the very least, I hate the way they use their money. I hate these people for having this much money. If we drive through these neighborhoods and we have a level of anger, then we have a contentment problem. Because having those things is neither good nor bad, but the way that we respond to, to things that we don't have, it reveals the discontent in our soul. And it isn't until we really are able to acknowledge that we need contentment and that this world will not provide it, only then is the door to true contentment really open. Then we can know the secret. And the secret is found in verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And so if we, as we've walked through Philippians, we have seen some of the most famous verses in all of the Bible, but I think this one probably tops them all. I mean, it isn't every verse that makes its way onto Tim Tebow's cheeks. <laughs> I bet half of the youth shirts you have hidden away somewhere have, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So it is one of those massively famous verses, but it's so often taken out of context that it's one of those most misunderstood verses at the same time, because this verse isn't saying that Jesus is the vehicle through which we can accomplish anything. It's not saying that we sprinkle a little Jesus dust on it and we're going to win the game, we're going to get the girl, we're going to make the grades, we're going to get the job. That's not what this verse is saying. One of the most famous pastors in the United States of America right now, preaching on this verse said that what this verse is saying is that if you're in a season of want right now, God is promising a season of plenty right, at, right around the corner. And you can do all things through Jesus who strengthens you. You can have that season of plenty. That's not what this verse is saying. There is a season of plenty coming, but it's not in this life. This verse isn't talking about the strength that we need to change our circumstances. It's talking about the strength that we need to endure all circumstances. And there's a, there's a huge difference between the two ways of interpret, interpreting this text. This text is here to minister to us when our health isn't going well, when we don't get the job, when we don't win the, win the game, maybe when we don't even make the team, when our children aren't going the way that we want our children to go. That's the season of life this verse is written to minister to. And literally... 
So we read in English through him. Literally in Greek, it's in him, in him. And Paul's doing something here that he does all over the New Testament. He says we are in Christ. So what does that mean? Because Paul writes all over the New Testament, I have been crucified with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. I've been risen with Christ. I live with Christ. I'm seated with Christ. And every time he's doing a similar thing, saying I am in Christ. So what does that mean? Because they're just words if we don't really understand what in Christ means. If we don't understand in Christ, we're not gonna get the secret to contentment. And so I'm gonna give you a very fancy word right now. We read a book to my daughter called Fancy Nancy. I don't know if you've ever heard of Fancy Nancy, but she has very fancy words for very simple things. And so the simple thing is in Christ and the very fancy word is federal relationship. That's the relationship that in Christ is communicating. We have have a federal relationship. And even if this is a new term to you, it's not a new concept. If you're married and you link bank accounts, you have a federal relationship. So if you marry somebody and they're in a lot of debt, you now owe that money. If you marry somebody and they're rich, you're now rich. That's a federal relationship because it means what is true of one is accrued to the other, okay? If you've ever had to hire an attorney, you've entered into a federal relationship because if that attorney is really smart in the courtroom, you're really smart in the courtroom. If that attorney is an idiot in the courtroom, you're screwed. That's a federal relationship. What's true of one person is true of the other. And that's what Paul is referring to when he says in Christ. And probably the best place that he fleshes this out is in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Paul says, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Another very famous verse. Is Paul saying that Jesus really became sinful? No, He has this federal relationship in mind. He's saying on the cross, all the sin and the punishment that our sin merits, it went to Jesus and he took it. And everything that Jesus earned with his perfect life, it comes to us. That's our federal relationship. We trade places with Jesus completely. He gets all the punishment we deserve. We get all the glory that he earned. That's the good news of the gospel, the good news of the Christian hope and the foundation of contentment in the Christian life. That our sin went to him who knew no sin. And I want this to be really, really clear, all right? So I want, I'm gonna explain it a slightly different way, really br- briefly. I have not gotten a moving violation, that's a driving violation, in 20 years. That is until two weeks ago. <laughs> I blame Orlando. So I was driving and I was at a red light and it stayed red and it stayed red and it stayed red. Nobody else was in the intersection. So I thought I'm, I'm justified here. I ran the red light. And I thought I was fine until about a week and a half later, I got a picture of me running the red light. I'm telling you, coming from Mississippi, we don't have categories for such a thing. And I had a fine and it was about 150 bucks and I paid the fine. And now because the fine has been paid, the law can't say anything to me about me running that red light because the fine has been paid. And this is what Paul means when he says, I've been crucified in Christ. I am sinful, yes, but I can't be held accountable for that sin in front of a holy God because that sin has been paid on the cross. I have been crucified with Christ. And so now I will one day be raised to live in my glorified body forever because I am in Christ. And can you see how that would develop a measure of contentment in the human heart? That you're in Christ. We're buried with Christ. We're raised with Christ. We're seated with Christ one day. 
And not only that, because it's not just a legal relationship, although that is a big part of it, we get Christ. We get to have this real relationship with our creator, unhindered by sin. And we get to enjoy it and nurture it until one day sin is no more. That's what it means to be in Christ. We have this treasure, this treasure that makes every other thing that could breed discontent in our lives seem like nothing by comparison. And so that's why Paul can say from seasons of want to the Romans, for I consider that, this, that the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed to us. And that's why he can say about seasons of plenty to the Philippian church. But whatever I had, whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul had experienced the highs and he knew that they weren't gonna satisfy him. He had experienced the lows that would reveal the most important things in life. And he knew that only in Christ was he going to experience the satisfaction that he truly longed for. And before we move on, I need to ask all of us, is that true of us? Do we realize that all the things that we long for, that none of them, as good as they are, jobs, money, homes, families, children, none of them are going to satisfy us the way that that Jesus will. And until we realize that, we're going to be asking so much more of those things than they can ever possibly give to us. We're gonna gonna have our glory linked to the performance of our children or the, the success of our businesses. And they were never made to sustain that kind of weight on their, on their shoulders? Do we realize that none of those things are gonna give us the contentment that we long for? And do we realize that Jesus can? Because if the answer is yes to both of those things, it will radically change the way that we live our lives. It radically changed the way that Paul lives his life and it will radically change the way that we live our lives. And so I wanna finish briefly by talking about what contentment does. Once we have it, what contentment does? Contentment does a lot of things, but predominantly, contentment puts us on mission. And and I think that we can see this really clearly in verses 14 through 17. I think that the Philippian church understood this. They'd, They'd heard this somewhere before. I think Paul is reminding them of something because this was a church that at one point, they were the only ones helping Paul out financially. They were giving sacrificially. They were enduring the trials and the persecution coming on them because of their faith so that they could be a part of this mission going forward. And it's only the contentment that comes from knowing you're in Christ that puts you on mission in this kind of way. So let's read verses 14 through 17. Paul says, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except only you. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. He will supply every need of ours. So we have to understand really clearly that there's a promise that every need we have will be fulfilled, but we have to define need the right way. 
Because the need isn't a material need, it's a missional need. God will supply every need we have along the way to make sure that we can live missionally and we can live a life glorifying him. And so many of you have probably heard of two famous English reformers, Hugh Latimer and Nicholas Ridley. So they were burned at the stake because of their faith. And as they were being tied to the stake, I bet somebody there was thinking that their main need is a strong thunderstorm to come through right now, put that fire out. But God knew that wasn't their main need. Their main need was grace to endure probably the 10 or so hardest minutes they would ever endure. And as the fires begin to be lit, Ridley was burning slower than expected. And so he was in intense pain and Latimer leaned over and he said, to Ridley in front of a huge audience. Be of good comfort and play the man, Master Ridley. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And it wasn't. And it stayed lit. People saw that. People's lives were changed because God knew in that minute their greatest need, it wasn't for the fire to go out, but the fire to burn so that people could see what true contentment looks like in the midst of unimaginable pain and suffering. And it changed them because they were people who, like Paul, could say in verse 20, to our God be glory forever and ever. Amen. And as I finish my first series here at Orlando Grace Church, I want to tell you that this is my main prayer for us that we would be a church that is marked by such a deep contentment in Jesus Christ that the mission is going through us in a really significant way. Because this church has been, I've been here long enough to be able to tell you this church is lavished with blessing. There are hundreds of people in this church who love each other as deeply as I've ever seen in a church. I mean, in my old church, the service would end and everybody would scatter. Here you stay around and the poor man, I don't know who it is who has to lock up, has to stay for a long time. You love each other well. You know your stuff. You know your doctrine. Statistically speaking, if you are a member at Orlando Grace Church, you have more doctrinal training than 95% of the pastors in the world. I got that statistic from Richard Pratt at Third Mill. And there are more seminary degrees in this room than probably most cities around the world. All right, so we have been lavished with blessing. And my prayer is that that doctrine would increasingly go to work. Because, and I've said this, this will be my third time in this series to say this. At the end of the day, a church, a local church, is a missions outpost. We exist to be an outpost for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our job isn't simply to enjoy and preserve the doctrine of Jesus Christ, although that's part of it. We're here to spread the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And that can't happen unless there is a deep sense of contentment in us because it is uncomfortable to constantly bring in new people. It's uncomfortable to enter into messy situations. It's uncomfortable to give up of our time and our money so the gospel of Jesus Christ to go can go forward but that's the mark of the Philippian church that's what Paul I think is pushing at in all of us in being in Christ and experiencing this kind of contentment so I want to finish by praying that this would be true however true it is of us now I want to pray that it would be true a thousand times more in the near future
Let's pray. God, I am so thankful to be a part of a church that is lavished in blessings. Everything from, from the facility to the people, to the doctrine and training and, and hearts that, that I know long to be used for you. I thank you for one person that I got to hear whose, whose prayer is that this year one person, one person would be drawn to you through him. And I pray that that is a prayer that would be true of all of us. One person. My goodness, if we had all of us one person that was drawn to you, we would not have room in this building. <laughs> and God, we know that this, this is a prayer that you desire to answer. This is a need that you desire to supply. And so we ask it, that we would put all of our blessings to work and we would be a light in this very, very dark city. I thank you for these brothers and sisters who have blessed us so much, who have loved us so much, and all those who have come before them that have made that to be the case. And we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.